The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Jonathan Latham. He is the co-founder and executive director of the Bioscience Resource Project and editor of the Independent Science News website. Dr. Latham holds a master's degree in crop genetics and a Ph.D. in virology. He was subsequently a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Genetics at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Prior to heading the Bioscience Resource Project, he published scientific papers in disciplines as diverse as plant ecology, plant virology, and genetics. Welcome, Dr. Latham. Hi, Melinda. Well, I'd like to just clarify something because it sounds to me from your bio that you worked in a lab as a researcher in crop genetics, and now you're working more on the communication side of science, and I wonder how and why you made that switch. Well, the basic reasons were my growing dissatisfaction with the ability of ourselves as researchers to do work that was in the public interest. So I was doing agriculture-related molecular genetics type work, and I also did more health-related genetics research. And, you know, in every case, it seemed that, and this seemed to be a trend, that the research was more and more being directed towards corporate profits and and sometimes generating misinformation that could be used in the public domain, and less and less for the basic improvement of the quality of food or the healthfulness or usefulness of medications, for example. And so I was frustrated at the, the disconnect between what we were supposed to be doing and what we actually were doing. So you are the co-founder and executive director of the Bioscience Resource Project. What exactly do you do, and how did you end up in Ithaca? You're based in Ithaca, New York. Yeah, that's right. Well, we basically, we wanted to, we became aware that not only publications that we were writing that were public interest research that we were doing as part of our project, but also that lots of other people were publishing very, very high-quality public interest research, but there was a lack of ability of members of the public to make use of that research. So you know, everybody wants to know what science says about some issue or other, but in many cases, research papers that were we thought were of extraordinary interest to members of the public couldn't be downloaded. They couldn't, you know, people didn't necessarily have the context to understand them, or we found papers that had never been cited, for example, which we thought were really exciting examples of public interest research. But if, if no one cited them in the published literature, it implies that they're just being lost, basically. That's right. We wanted to get them online. Well, what intrigues me so much about your work is that you rarely find a lab-based scientist or a bench scientist who can also communicate really well. And you have both those skills. And I'm just going to give our listeners some examples of some of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on. And you've written several papers, and the one that truly intrigued me most was titled Monsanto's PR, Organic Farming versus GMO, How the Great Food War Will Be Won. And in that paper, you brilliantly challenge 
this narrative that we've been fed, which states basically that we have to have GMOs, we have to have this technology, we have to use chemicals and pesticides and herbicides if we are going to feed the world. And you challenge that assumption. What we did was we had a look at the models that people like the World Bank and the the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization were using to generate these predictions. So you get statements from the head of the World Bank, for example, saying that within 10 years the world will be fighting over food and water. And so we were interested in, you know, this is a very prevalent narrative. It's used by biotech companies, it's used by farmers, it's used by all sorts of groups to push agendas in agriculture, to interfere, if you like, in the you know, the simple transaction between a farmer and an eater. So we wanted to look at how accurate were these descriptions of the future of the food supply. You know, were we really facing a shortage or not? Because so many people are using this as their storyline, if you like. And so, so we looked at the models that the World Bank and the Food and Agriculture Organization were using. And it turns out they're full of assumptions. So they're assuming, for example, there are no current surpluses. They assume that farmers couldn't grow more food if they wanted to, for example, by switching crops to produce more calories. These, the stories being fed to the media and to policymakers from these you know, very complicated models were essentially not a good reflection of what was going on in the real world, where farmers are faced with low prices and oversupply and gluts and such like. There was a total disconnect between those models and what was going on in the real world. And so... So we really were interested in that. You know, how does a how does an official story coming out of Washington and capital cities disconnect so badly with the the reality on the ground that farmers in in all these different countries experience? Mm-hmm. So interesting. There have been a couple of situations that I'd like to share. One is that Monsanto recently hosted a group of press from D.C. and that seems wrong to me in that you would have this corporate-driven message being given to reporters who are supposed to be providing not just more of the same PR. And the second is, I'm based in Columbia, Missouri, and at the University of Missouri, there is an auditorium called the Monsanto Auditorium. And clearly, our School of Agriculture gets quite a bit of funding from, from agribusiness. And I will never forget a lecture I heard. It was presented by Roger Beachy, who was affiliated with the Danforth Plant Sciences Center in St. Louis. And he basically started out by saying that, of course, GMO foods are safe. And then he gave us a false dichotomy. He said, we can either feed the world using biotechnology or use a lot more chemicals. Mm-hmm. And this was given to an auditorium of agriculture professors and students And truly, I was alarmed, and there was no time for Q&A. So Mm -hmm. we desperately need your service to help question some of these models. I mean, clearly, what the the choices that Roger Beachy gave us, and by the way, I I will tell you that he was also introduced as a virologist. You know, I I knew him as a virologist, too. We go go way back. Yeah. If you were in that audience, what would you have done? Well, I mean, I go to similarish talks. I mean, our hometown is where Cornell University is based, and yeah. we get steady procession of people telling similar stories. And I try to ask people, for example, about the assumptions involved in those models, you know, and whether they really are using them in the way they're intended to be. I mean, the models are false in in the first place, but 
they're also interpreted by people wrongly. So, the, interestingly, the Food and Agriculture Organization's model, it assumes that, you know, they, they actually state themselves, to give them credit, they state that this is not a, a kind of instructional model. It's not telling people what they should do. But molecular biologists and people who are, who are reputable plant scientists and even who publish papers on these issues use those as, you know, what's called normative. It's like, like this is what we should do or else trouble will happen. And so not only are they using the assumptions within the models and the context of the model wrongly, but also they're using, using the model in, in the wrong way, as it, even in ways that are described as inaccurate in the, you know, the footnotes of the models often say things like, you know, this shouldn't be used as an instructive way in which we should run our agriculture. It's just, and it's sort of an, you know, we're drawing a straight line here between out into the future as to what might happen if we don't change things. But even at that level, they're still wrong. You know, so there's basically what's happening is errors are being piled upon errors by people who are basically serving their own interests. And Roger Beachy, you know, as far as I can tell, is serving the interests of the biotech industry, you know, and he always has. Mm-hmm. As a dietitian, I can tell you that we're targeted by Monsanto, Dow, Bayer mm-hmm. Science, you know, the, the whole group of corporations within the, um, under the umbrella of agribusiness. And there are several red flag statements that always pop up, as you mentioned, of course, in your article, this whole idea that it's a fear model and there's an mm-hmm. urgency tone that, oh, my gosh, we have to feed the world. And, you know, we're dietitians. We have compassion towards humanity and we care about people's health. And many of us work in hunger fields and we, we want to feed people well. And so we're very vulnerable, I think, to this kind of message. I think most human beings are. And I wonder if you could talk to me and, and tell me a little bit about how we might challenge those assumptions. Mm-hmm. Before we go into that, it is a moral argument. Yeah. The intention of the biotech industry, when they present these ideas and when they talk about the food crisis and food shortages and how we need this biotechnology, is to play into guilty feelings. You know, housewives or you know anybody who wants to go into a supermarket and buy food and say think about buying organic food. What the biotech industry wants them to think about is whether they're going to, as a consequence of that action, basically take food from the mouths of hungry people. That's, that's the connection that they would like to make. Yeah. They, you know, we have hungry people in the world, and you're buying food that produces half, you know, this is not, this is not true, but this is the presumption that, that they offer people. You're buying food that yields half as much, and that, that missing half is, is not being used to feed a child in Sudan or something like that. Exactly. Now, this is the equivalent. And politics is moral in my opinion. I, I recently was reading George Lakoff's Don't Think of an Elephant. Yeah. And he is correct in thinking that you know, people very often vote, you know, will vote, for example, against their own financial self-interest. Exactly. We are moral people. Nobody wants to think of themselves or to be thought of as being uncaring of the needs or, or whatever it is of, of other people. So this argument is really pitched in the right place to, to appeal to to most of humanity, basically. And it's very, very effective. Yeah. But the assumptions, I mean, we made a list of assumptions that are required for this model. So one I mentioned is that they don't take into account the surpluses. So you have all these countries all over the world that have massive surpluses. So the farmers are laboring under low prices because the country has a surplus. And yet there are people in Washington saying that you know Indian people are starving when India produces absolutely massive quantities of food. 
and they have huge sheds all over the country. I think there's 150 of these sheds all over the country, and they contain so much. These buildings are half a mile long, piled full of rice and things like that. You know, they have an agricultural system that, despite all the images that we have, is actually quite effective at feeding those countries. You know, India is producing, is a really good example in this. India is 1.2 billion people, but they have 3% of the land surface. So this agricultural system that they have, which is always so uh, ridiculed in in Europe and in in North America, is feeding a fifth of the world's population from 3% of the land area quite a lot of which is desert or it's seasonally rain-fed. It's not, you know, we're not talking about the world's most productive land here. But these people are doing an incredible job of feeding all those people, the farmers, the peasants, for the most part. They're doing an incredible job of feeding those people. But the models don't take into account the excess food that all those farmers are producing. So it's, it's basically not incorporated into the model. Another assumption that's in the model is that that farmers could easily produce, in many cases, more productive crops. So, for example, many farmers are producing uh, crops that are used for biofuels or that are low-yielding crops or that are subsidized, for example, or used to feed animals. And they could easily, if the economic conditions were right, or they were encouraged to do so by subsidies or by mandates or whatever it is, switch to producing foods that were much more useful for feeding human population, right? because that's not necessary. Essentially, we produce too much food already, then there, there's no reason to encourage them, in a sense, to do that. But also, there's no reason to imagine that we have a food shortage, because you could, they could quite easily switch over to growing more productive crops. So that's another assumption that, that these models don't incorporate. They just assume that, that any increases in productivity has to come from higher yields of whatever crops being grown at the moment, say wheat or rice or potatoes. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, you know, these models, these assumptions rather inside the models, you know, they appear to be unexamined. Nobody seems to be drawing attention to them. But if you understand enough about the food system, you can see that they're incredibly important, and that the the predictions of these models that another two or three billion people will destroy the the surplus that we already have are, are totally not true. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Jonathan Latham. He is co-founder and executive director of the Bioscience Resource Project and editor of the Independent Science News website. You know, I think another one of the myths that goes along with this story, or let's just say that one of the areas that's ignored under this myth of, oh my gosh, we've got to produce more food, and urgently, is that we waste somewhere between 30 to 40% of our food supplies. So I never see or I rarely see this concept of food waste blended into this narrative or this dialogue. That's another one of the words that they like to use, having a dialogue about how to feed the world. Rarely do I see food waste brought up. Yes, it depends. In some circles, you do see it brought up as an issue. And there is no doubt that, especially in developed countries, but, but equally in poorer countries too, there are food is wet, lost, in, I suppose, in, in different parts of the food system. Mm-hmm. But there is a huge amount of food lost in the system. But, you know, a lot of the reason for that food wastage is that, in many cases, this food is so cheap. Right? It's being lost because, it sounds perverse, but it's being lost because people don't value it enough. 
Okay? If you can afford to just buy three tubs of strawberries or twice as many tomatoes as you need, or it's being stored in huge sheds where basically it has no market value, for example, in India. You know, it's being stored in these places because the government wants to prop up, to some extent, the price of rice, for example, or wheat. But at the same time, that means that it's basically a surplus. And so it has no value. Or it's in the supermarket in a European country or in, in the U.S. And this food is so cheap relative to what most people, you know, the expenses of many, many people. And that basically means that the food gets wasted. So you have this an unexamined part of the food crisis problem, if you like, mm-hmm. is that there is a surplus of food and there are savings, that's for sure, to be made in terms of there being producing too much. But, but at the same time, there is, in a sense, no need to worry, in a sense, about that waste. I mean, the, one of the interesting things about that waste is that, you know, in the old days, food waste went to compost. Mm-hmm. And compost, it would go back into the soil and be recycled. So we have essentially food that is not going to be eaten by anybody being essentially thrown into landfills. And actually, I'm more concerned about it being thrown into landfills and causing methane gas emissions than I am about the fact that the food is being wasted in yeah. the first place. Yeah. I think it's curious that we bring forth these myths, that maybe we we put some holes in the story that we've been told about this urgent need to increase food production. Mm -hmm. And then people might feel like they've been duped. Perhaps the farmers, for example, who have been convinced that this is the way they need to grow food because they are important and significant contributors to feeding the world. How do we navigate this idea or this concept that people might not take kindly to feeling like, you mean I've been duped? Mm -hmm. Well, we have to understand that there are very powerful propaganda machines at work in all this. The amount of energy that certain organizations and corporations and such like have put into misleading people about, for example, the status of the food supply is enormous. You know, I think it's very understandable that people should feel, firstly, angry about it. But secondly, if you are given a piece of information, I mean, I get this information on a daily basis. You know, we were asked to, the first paper that we wrote, when we put, which we wrote as part of our uh, new nonprofit when we started the Bioscience Resource Project, we, we published a paper about GMOs and we were asked by the editor of the journal to put in something in the introduction to the scientific paper about how genetically engineered crops were necessary to feed the world. And at the time, this is eight years ago, we said at the time, we're not experts in that. We'd rather not do that. But at the time, I didn't appreciate that the models were not supported. The science didn't support and the evidence didn't support that argument. But I knew that I didn't want to make it as a scientific author because I hadn't looked into the issues. But the fact that you know, everybody who writes a paper about genetic engineering is being asked to put this in the introduction if they haven't done it already means that, you know, firstly, a lot of people are just repeating information that they haven't properly thought through or don't know the evidence for. But also it means that it's coming to people every single day in many cases. You know, if you work in many professions, you'll come across it all the time. True. But if we want to talk about the issue of what will farmers there are people who are, you know, essentially self-esteem is in part based on this, on this right. myth. 
And farmers, for example, if you're a farmer in Iowa, you don't necessarily have the opportunity very easily to check all this information. And so those farmers will, they do, some of them, repeat that information. And but they're doing so without having actually been able to check it out for themselves or having done so. You know, it takes a lot of work. I mean, it took us quite a few months to look at all the models and try to understand what was going on here. And so we did some intensive research to try to get to the bottom of a story that requires a lot of experience of the food system. You know, I've been to India. I've been to a lot of different countries. I've lived in Britain, and I've seen this system of subsidies and what farmers, you know, where crops are going. And so, so we have available to us a lot more information than we ever used to, but also it's information that, that is hidden in many cases. So I don't think people should feel bad about misunderstanding what's going on. But we do have to have a commitment to understanding the truth, as you said in your introduction. You know, this is all about, we're all in a process of trying to, you know, unpick the lies that have been fed to us by governments or by corporations and to try to get to the bottom of the issues. And that's essentially what our work is about, and it's what your work is about, too. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we hear repeatedly has to do with the safety of genetically engineered foods. And mm. I like to expand the notion of safety to also take into account the use of chemicals that go with the crop. So it's mm-hmm. the crop mm-hmm. itself, and then it's also the inputs that go along with that crop and how that impacts the larger food system. Mm-hmm. But being that you are a bench scientist and you've worked with crop genetics, mm-hmm. let me ask you, do you feel that we have enough evidence to say that genetically engineered foods are safe? There is a general statement there, and then there's also the the question of the specifics. You know, each genetically modified crop is made with different genes and and has different properties or has different chemicals applied to it. So it's a very complicated question, and there is no, you know, in many ways there is no blanket answer to that statement. But I used to make these transgenic plants, and when I finished my PhD in 1996, and they were already on the market, I felt that we didn't know anywhere near enough about these crops to act for people to actually use them and consume them, and, and nor to release them into the environment either. And I still believe that's true. We do some detailed research at our project into the specifics of many genetically engineered crops, and there are huge question marks over the safety of many of them. Uh, there are huge question marks over the safety of the chemicals that people put onto them. So, for example, the chemicals, and there are interactions between those. So, for example, some of the herbicide-resistant traits that are out there, they modify the chemicals that are put onto the plants. Okay? So, so they modify the, the chemicals that are put onto plants into, and turn them into new chemicals that have never been safety tested. Okay? So people are being exposed to novel chemicals because of the genetic engineering process. And we have reason to think that those chemicals are not good for people, but there's no proof. So at the moment, we're in a situation where there are many, many question marks and and active concerns over many of the chemicals that are being either produced as a part of the genetic engineering process or the chemicals that are being put on plants and also the interactions between them. But there's total insufficiency of data out there. You know, we have... The way I like to think about it is we've essentially failed as scientists to protect the public from the hazards of synthetic chemicals. You know, we have 
cellulites out there, we have endocrine disruptors, we have carcinogens, we have all these different classes of toxins that have been approved by previous generations and are still being approved of scientists. And we have failed to get to the bottom of you know, how you protect the public from the harm of chemicals. And, but we've taken a new step forward and started introducing genetically modified organisms, which are hard, if not impossible, to withdraw from the environment and from the food supply. And we sort of presume that we can do risk assessments on those as well, when the degree of difficulty is, is infinitely greater with organisms that have lives of their own. Hmm. And so I have huge concerns about what's going on at the moment. Yeah, and, you know, it's this whole idea of how often you repeat a lie. And I can't tell you how often I've been at, at scientific meetings where we've had one side, you know, you've got the, you've always have to have this balance, right? You've got two sides mm-hmm. presented. And the one side is a little bit louder, has more money to spread their message, and the message is consistently repeated that these are so well tested. And so hundreds of, of research reports have been done proving safety. Mm-hmm. And then there are those of us who say, well, I'm not so sure. And was all of this research independent? And can we tease that out? Mm-hmm. So w- we're in a real dilemma when we can't really tease out the he said, she said science and find the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's difficult enough that scientists. If there are a whole bunch of different people doing research, I mean, science is an exercise in humility. If it's done well, you know, what it is is an exercise in discovering all the things that you don't know. This is what typically comes out of scientific research, is more questions than answers. But what risk assessors are in the habit of doing, and companies encourage them to do that, is producing research that forecloses possibilities and has a sort of aura of completeness, and credibility and firmness about it, that actually is not really part of what science is about. So you have people doing an experiment on rats, for example, and saying this experiment shows that this GMO crop is safe for people. But people were never part of that scientific experiment, for example. And so what essentially those researchers have done is extrapolate. And they've extrapolated not only towards different species, but also to, you know, even just within rats, or they've extrapolated from the circumstances of those experiments. So, like, GMOs may be safe if they're included as rat chow, but they may not be safe if they're cooked, or they may not be safe if they're used in other ways, for example. So there's all these extrapolations that go into these safety testing experiments in order for risk assessors to draw a conclusion as to whether these experiments really, really show safety or not. And essentially, the extrapolations are based on no evidence. We don't know that these chemicals that are mixed together in the, in the GMO are going to be safe for people at the end of the day. It's a guess. And, and we have lots of reasons to think they might. Those, those guesses are often not good. And so there's huge extrapolations that are going on in this science that are not obvious to lay people. Well, I want to thank you so much for questioning assumptions that we've been fed. 
I want to thank our listeners, of course, for joining us, and I want to thank you, Dr. Latham, for being my guest. I need to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And once again, we've been speaking with Jonathan Latham, co-founder and executive director of the Bioscience Resource Project and editor of the Independent Science News website. Those websites are www.biosciencesource.org and independentsciencenews.org, and I highly recommend those, those websites. Thank you again, Dr. Latham, for being with me. Thank you, Linda.